All right, good morning. Welcome to another week of being scattered together. Thank you for joining with us uh, in this online scattered together way. Uh, and, and again, happy Mother's Day uh, to all mothers today, biological, spiritual, uh, potential, whatever it is. Happy Mother's Day to you. Special shout out to my own mom and Sarah's mom, who I know often um, partake in these uh, online scattered together gatherings. So, uh, Love you guys. Thanks for being the amazing mothers uh, that you were. And of course, to my own wife, who, who I just love and want to just celebrate as an amazing mother to my kids. Um, we're going to do what we always do now. We're going to look at a passage from God's word together. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what you should do about it. So let's jump into this. If, if you have a Bible with you, a uh, Bible app, whatever it is, would you turn to our passage today? Matthew 5, now beginning at verse 31. And then uh, to kind of supplement this teaching, we're also going to jump ahead to Matthew 19 and look at uh, some extra teaching on this same subject there. So if you want to stick your finger in Matthew 19, we'll start in Matthew 5, verse 31. Here Jesus says this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Over to Matthew 19, beginning at verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But, it, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. <sighs> Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> this, this is God's word. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll jump into this together. Spirit of God, would you illumine the teaching of your word? I believe you have a purpose for this passage, teaching like this on this day. is certainly nothing I would have ever chosen for today, but... God, I believe you have a purpose that you want to accomplish in this teaching today. Would you accomplish it? You say that whenever you send out your word, it does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Would you do that today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, you, you don't even need to be a fan of the game. You don't even need to know much about hockey at all to know that just generally speaking, having a goalie in the net throughout the game, that's pretty important, right? You don't need to know a lot about hockey to know, like, having the goalie to stop the pucks, like, that's, that's pretty important to have that, that player in the net throughout the game, right? And, and sure, although the, the rules permit a coach to, to pull the goalie uh, uh, at any time during the game in order to add an additional attacker onto the ice, I don't know any coach that's going to make use of that provision except in the most dire of cases, right? Like in the final minutes when the game is otherwise lost, they'll pull the goalie to get an extra attacker and try and get that, that tying goal. The point being, 
although there is a provision in the rules, playing hockey without a goalie in the net is neither required by the rules, nor is it how the game of hockey was ever intended to be played and enjoyed. So we're continuing in our teaching series this morning through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at Jesus' teaching in his famous Sermon on the Mount in particular. And having moved out of Jesus' uh, description of blessed kingdom citizens in the Beatitudes and now into this section of Jesus' teaching about how his kingdom citizens are to relate to the Old Testament law and the prophets now that he has come to fulfill them, we now here today come to consider Jesus' fuller developments on the Old Testament teaching about divorce, which, yeah, okay, like as I was already alluding to, I I just want to acknowledge right from the beginning, I know, like I'm sorry, I I get it. I know this is like the very worst Mother's Day passage like ever, or at least one of the worst ones. Uh, It is one of the blessings and curses of preaching through a book. We come across all kinds of subjects which maybe we wouldn't naturally choose to preach on. I can tell you, I certainly would not have been like, "Hmm, let's see, Mother's Day, what do I want to preach? I know, divorce. No, right? And yet, this is what we've come to. So again, I'm, I'm trusting that, that there is a, a purpose that God has for this uh, in us to, to, to learn from today, despite the, the, the date of the calendar. But I also want to acknowledge the fact that regardless, regardless of the date on the calendar, divorce is just a, it's just a sensitive, hard, awkward subject to bring up at all. Whether that's because you grew up in, in a broken family divided by divorce, whether that's because you've experienced the pain of a broken marriage yourself personally, or because you are in an incredibly difficult marriage right now where divorce feels like, like a very real, inevitable possibility. Any one of those reasons, or, or just as well as the fact that, you know what, over the course of history, the, the church has not always done well at caring for divorced people. And very often treated divorced people like it's kind of this scarlet letter stigma. We just haven't haven't loved and cared for divorced people well. So for for all those reasons, this can just be an awkward, difficult subject to to bring up and and talk about at all. I want to be very sensitive to, to all of those difficult and painful realities as we look at what Jesus has to say in our teaching today about divorce from Matthew 5 and then that that fuller teaching that Jesus goes on to give in Matthew 19. But here's the thing, along with any sensitivity I might bring, I hope what you'll also clearly see and feel from today's teaching is that Jesus also cares deeply about the pain and devastation experienced by by something like divorce in our lives. He he cares deeply about those things. And and as with every aspect of the law and the prophets Jesus came to fulfill, he desires our freedom from its devastating effects. I hope, hope you'll see that throughout this as well. But something that is unique now um, about our passage today from Matthew 5 regarding Jesus now familiar, you have heard it was said, but I say to you formula, is that what Jesus here, the the teaching Jesus references in verse 31, look with me there, is, is not so much what was actually written down in the Law and the Prophets, but how a particular provision given by Moses, should a divorce ever take place, was interpreted by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and, and had become the kind of general popular understanding about marriage and divorce in Jesus' day. So, so it's a little bit different. He's not necessarily referencing a command like the other times. Here he really is just referencing a, an understanding and a teaching 
uh, when he says, you have heard that it was said. And, and, and we'll dig more deeply into this. We'll, we'll, we'll look at what that provision about a certificate of divorce actually was, as well as why Jesus challenges the popular understanding of the day, that, that, that divorce was permissible for any and every reason, as long as you gave someone that certificate. But, well, of course, the reality is, if, if that's all we talked about, well, that, that will be a history lesson and not a sermon, right? But, but... I think what makes this teaching still so relevant for us today is that however, just, just acknowledging this simple reality that although uh, our views on who can seek a divorce may have developed over 2,000 years of history to include women, our attitude towards the permanence of marriage, our attitudes towards that have not changed in the slightest. Okay, so which, which means whatever Jesus has to say about the destructive, misguided attitudes towards divorce and, and marriage to the people that he's speaking to in his day can also speak directly to our experience in 2021 just as well. Because our attitudes about marriage and divorce are actually very, very similar still to this day. So in order to help us get to that understanding and grasp the goodness and the freedom of what Jesus has to say to all of us here in his teaching today. I want to look at our passage today in just two ways this morning. I want to show you the goodness of the actual command. And I'll explain more about what I mean by that as we get there. And then the meaning of the actual exception. Okay? The goodness of the actual command. The meaning of the actual exception. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me? To our passage here, Matthew 5. We'll start there, beginning of verse 31, follow along with me as we look at Jesus' still very relevant teaching today about the goodness of God's design in marriage, as well as the destructive power of divorce that Jesus came to bring us freedom from. Okay, so let's look first of all at the goodness of the actual command. The goodness of the actual command. So take something like divorce. If you were just to separate all of the emotion and baggage and everything else out of divorce and look at it from a strictly statistical perspective alone, according to a study published in the Toronto Sun earlier in January of this year, apparently when we're just looking at the numbers here, Canada's divorce rate apparently ranks 29th right now out of 87 countries where we have one, apparently, one in about every 309 adults are divorced. Uh, United States, our neighbors to the south, they ranked third overall, actually, with one in every 189 adults being divorced, while Chile, of all places, actually came in dead last, 87th overall, with just one in every 5,714 adults divorced. Now, those are just numbers, and as the study itself acknowledged, some of the things they didn't account for were, were changing views about the importance of marriage, particularly in Western culture in general, over the last, particularly in the last 10 to 20 years, uh, where, where we have people delaying marriage longer and longer, or sometimes foregoing it altogether, uh, uh, the introduction of things like no-fault divorce, which made divorce just easier to pursue. They, they didn't account for all of those things, but, but those, are the, those are the numbers, generally speaking, about like how prevalent something like divorce still is in our society today. But of course, what no statistics could ever account for is the real life, like on the ground, emotional and relational 
damage and destruction caused by divorce, both, both for the individuals as well as for children and families affected by it. I mean, the reality is even in the most like civil, if we could call that, the most civil, nice uh, of divorces where the divorcees, you know, they want to remain good friends, they want to still try to co-parent their kids to the best of the ability. What you still hear is just this, there's still this weight, this, this gravitas to the, the dissolution of the marriage, as well as a, a sense of, of loss to one degree or another for everyone involved. And what I'm saying is that in the same way we saw last week, the destructive power of adultery reveals sex to be so much more than just satisfying an, an animal drive, so too do I think that the destructive power of divorce reveals marriage to be so much more than just a government-sanctioned partnership for tax purposes or, or to increase the stability of a society. So much more than that. There, there's something going on at a much deeper level than, than that in sex as well as in marriage, but that, that, that's a biblical perspective. Maybe coming from a, a secular point of view or worldview on those things, that deeper meaning doesn't often maybe reveal itself until things fall apart. Until things break down or take a turn for the worse, all of a sudden you, you realize, well, wait, why am I feeling this? Maybe there is something more going on in both of these things. But when understood from a biblical perspective, when we understand what marriage is from a biblical perspective, as, as Jesus himself references of God's good design in marriage that comes from the opening chapters of Genesis that he references there in the Matthew 19 passage, we see that marriage in God's design, is about a man and a woman. That is, those who are alike in nature but opposite, different from one another, leaving their families of origin, holding fast, devoting themselves to one another before God till death do us part, for richer, for poorer, and then joining together in a one flesh, whole self-giving. And that, that, that one flesh union that the Bible describes from their, their sexual union. I mean, it, it's not without cause or purpose. It's not irrelevant that, that a marriage ceremony is called a wedding, which sounds very much like welding. It's this like joining, fastening together of people through this act of sexual union. That, so, so that's the Bible's picture of what marriage is. And when you think of it that way, I think it helps us to see then clearly why divorce, why, why separating, tearing apart what God has joined together is such a painful, destructive thing. Leading even author Margaret Atwood to note, uh, to note once, she said, divorce is like an amputation. I think she's right. It's so much more than just like the breaking of a contract or, or, or the moving out of the same house. It's, it's, it's an amputation. Why? Because of the tightness, the, the, the joined nature of what a marriage is. But here's the strangest thing. Even holding to that biblical picture of marriage, as they did, even having that understanding of what marriage was, the most commonly accepted teaching of the religious rulers, the most commonly accepted understanding of Jewish society as a whole in Jesus' day that he references there, both in the Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 passage, that their attitudes about divorce had still become that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce. Even with that understanding of what marriage is, they still said, as long as you give a certificate of divorce, any and every reason a man can divorce his wife. And, and, and as some Jewish historians know, it really was any reason. It really was. Like even for, for such, including such minor offenses as frequently burning your husband's dinner. 
grounds for divorce. You, you, you could send away your wife because of this. Like, it's clearly something had gone wrong. Like, all they needed to do was just simply go before the Jewish council, give the, the reason for the, that they wanted the divorce, and then present their wife with a certificate, re- releasing her from their marriage and giving her the, the freedom, if we can call it that, to remarry. Which, unfortunately, in that day and age, in that society, a, wo- a woman very frequently had to do in order just to survive. But here's the thing. When, when you go back and actually look for yourself at what, at what all this teaching and understanding was based on, it was based on really just nothing more than a literalistic interpretation of a provision given by Moses in Deuteronomy 24 about a process. Should a divorce take place? So not, not for the divorce, but should a divorce take place, a provision that protected a divorced woman from just being casually discarded. That's what it was about. Like All the certificate was ultimately intended to say was that a woman who had been divorced by, by her husband could not then be remarried to that same husband who divorced her should her new husband die or choose to divorce her as well. He couldn't just claim her back and take her back to marry her again. That, that was the only purpose of this certificate. It was protecting the wife from just being casually tossed away. So making the husband really think like, okay, do I really want to end this marriage? Because I, I can't go back now and, and remarry her later. It's treating women with the, the respect and dignity as, as fellow equal human beings, not just like something to be picked up and taken off at, at your whim. And yet, just look at Matthew 19. Look, look at how, look at how, the, the, the Pharisees had somehow renamed, just reframed the, the, whole, the, the whole thing here. They, they, they'd taken that obscure provision from Deuteronomy 24, intended to protect a woman, and, and see it now, they're calling it the command of Moses. They're in verse 7 of Matthew 19. The command of Moses, allowing a man to divorce his wife for any, any and, and every reason. And so as the Pharisees re- retort to Jesus' suggestion that no, they couldn't, you actually can't divorce your wife for any and every reason. And they say, okay, well then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Calling it the command of Moses, this, this provision in the case of a divorce, saying this is now the command of Moses of what to do. But if you look at Jesus' response in the very next verse, you see that according to Jesus, divorcing your wife for any and every reason was neither the command of God nor was it God's intent for marriage from the beginning. Rather, it was, it was a provision Moses had made solely because of the hard, selfish hearts of the men of Israel. And it was put in place simply so that a discarded wife could at least be protected from suffering total ruin at the, at the whim of her husband. That, that, that was the, the, really the purpose of it. And, and it came solely because of the hardness of the heart. So, so, so this is what Jesus is referring to back in our passage in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 31 from, from the Sermon on the Mount when he says, it was also said, or you have heard it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That, that's, that's what he's referring to. Again, just a complete, absolute misreading, misapplication of the provision given by Moses there in Deuteronomy 24. Literally on the same level as like a, a hockey coach pulling the goalie before the, even, the, the opening face-off even happens and, and seeing that pulling the goalie is, is calling it the command of Gary Bettman or something like that. Not realizing like, no, okay, there, there is a provision in the NHL rulebook to pull your goalie whenever you want, but it's not a command at all. 
It's not, it's, the, the rules don't require you to pull your goalie. You have a provision, an allowance to do it, should there be no other hope of winning the game. It's the last ditch, very end of the game, no other hope option alone, and only a provision, not required. That, that, that's that's the, the foolishness of, of how they were reframing this provision. Now, now, we'll get to what Jesus does provide as an acceptable reason for divorce and why that exception alone is acceptable before God. But if you look at verse 32 of Matthew 5 or verse 9 of Matthew 19, what we see is that contrary to the teaching of the Pharisees, according to Jesus, divorcing your wife for any and every reason made both the divorced woman as well as the man who divorced her guilty of adultery now should they ever seek to remarry anyone else. That's what Jesus is saying is actually going on. And, and I know, listen, I, I get even just saying that, that that's, that's wildly offensive, hugely controversial in our day and age. The point I'm trying to make is that it would have been just as offensive and controversial in Jesus' day as well. What Jesus is ultimately saying, just to use our modern-day divorce proceedings as an example, is he's saying human courts, be, be they legal or religious or whatever, human courts don't have the power. They don't have the authority to break apart or to free someone what God has joined together. They don't have the, they don't have the power to do that. That is, Jesus is saying, your certificate of divorce does not absolve you from guilt in the courtroom of heaven should you choose to remarry another person. You can't present that certificate and be like, I'm, I'm right, I, I did the command. He's just like, that, that, that's not valid here in the courtroom of heaven. You're still held to that covenant. You're still joined. And I know, I know, listen, I know Jesus' teaching can sound, uh, can sound oppressive, that can sound offensive. And it can also create all kinds of other questions, right? Both for the person maybe who's been divorced for reasons other than what the Bible gives as, as reasons we are permitted to divorce, be that being um, um, adultery in marriage as well as abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. To, to create kind of questions like, so what does that mean for me? Can I not be forgiven by God? Can, am I not ever free to remarry? Like, what does that, what does that mean? The answer is, is no. Like, there, there's, there's, there's more to it. And certainly the forgiveness of God absolutely covers any of those things. It, it is not the unforgivable sin. Or it can also create questions for the person currently married to someone who is emotionally or maybe physically abusive. And they're saying, okay, so what, I'm supposed to stay in this marriage right now just because my husband, my husband hasn't cheated on me? I have to just stay here and continue to be in fear of, of, of abuse of my, myself and my kids? Is that what the Bible saying? No, no, absolutely not. But here's the thing. I think, I think to begin, to start by, by focusing on, on the teaching of Jesus as an offense, to, to look at it, to begin with the idea of the offense of this can mean, could mean, that we are still looking at marriage like the Pharisees were. That is, we, we're looking at it, but we're beginning with the question, okay, what are the acceptable means and reasons for ending a marriage? And so really, I think what Jesus is presenting in our passage in Matthew 19, and certainly to us today, is it's not that there, it's not that there aren't reasons, but don't start with that. Don't, don't start with, what are the reasons I can break this if I need to? Because the thing is, although the Bible does provide reasons that a marriage may need to be, may, may need to be dissolved, 
as well as absolutely providing protections for those living in abusive and physically dangerous situations, the perspective Jesus invites his listeners then and today into is to begin instead to start first with the goodness of God's design in marriage. Start here, says Jesus. Pharisees are like, can't we divorce our wives for any neighbor reason? Jesus says, haven't you read? Haven't you read how it was from the beginning? Start with the goodness of marriage, the good intent of God in marriage. To see marriage as the beautiful, profound, honorable thing that God created it to be. Start there. Look at marriage, this, this whole self-giving of one person to another that, that is worthy of effort, that is worthy of service, that is worry, worthy of sacrificing everything, sacrificing ourselves. Seeing marriage that way rather than something that just to be tossed away at the smallest whim, tossed away at the, the glimpse of greener grass elsewhere. Start with the beauty of marriage, says Jesus. I think Jesus makes that invitation to honor the covenant of marriage with the inherent value and importance it holds. Not, not to restrict our freedom, to be like, oh, you can't go over there. And not because Jesus is some kind of traditionalist that just needs to keep everything like he remembered it back in the good old days. No. But because as we see throughout the flow of the Bible's teaching culminating in the book of Revelation, the, the covenant of marriage, this, this relationship called marriage that we experience on earth is ultimately only intended to be an earthly picture, to be a demonstration of God's relationship with his kingdom citizens, with his church. That's, that's all our earthly marriages are. They, are. they are not forever. They don't continue on after this life. Those who enjoy marriage right now, this, this is only a picture of that divine reality. With Jesus, our bridegroom, giving everything, even his life, in order to win his bride, the church. That's what our marriages picture. And so therefore, to treat earthly marriages with contempt... To treat our earthly marriages as a tool simply to serve your own interests, as well as to break apart what God has joined together just for any and every reason, is also to dishonor and devalue the divine reality to which our marriages point. So that's the, that's the goodness of the actual command command to honor the permanence, to honor the permanence God intended for marriage, as well as, the, again, the, the safety and protection that God designed the covenant of marriage to provide for that whole self-giving that you were giving to another person, to provide a place of safety where you could give that and, and know that it would be honored and respected and, and valued. But just as the Pharisees had mistook the provision of Deuteronomy 24 for the commandment of God, so too had they misunderstood that same provision as being the justifiable means before God to dissolve a marriage. Problem with that, again, as we saw, their, their error was leading people to commit adultery by violating the marriage covenant, which although maybe legally separated, was still very much joined together by God. So the last thing I want to look at together with you is the meaning of the actual exception. The meaning of the actual exception. And we need to look at this because both in Matthew 5 as well as Matthew 19, the only exception Jesus offered that truly suffers, severs what God had joined together, truly makes someone free to marry another person, is sexual immorality within the marriage, unfaithfulness, adultery within the marriage. And maybe this is already obvious to you. 
I don't know, maybe it's already obvious to you, but, but what I want to look at for just a few minutes is why. Like why Jesus sees adultery and unfaithfulness alone as the only exception for divorce. I want to look at that for a second. But then in closing, having said that, what I really want to highlight is the fact that although adultery is a biblical provision for divorce, it is still only a provision and not a command. So so let's do this first of all. The, The reason Jesus says adultery is the only acceptable grounds for divorce has to do with something that we looked at last week actually as it relates to what sex is or what what is the the meaning of sex as God designed it. For again, if you remember, much more than just being physically naked and unashamed with one another, God designed sex to be this whole self-giving of one person to another, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in all these ways, giving of the whole self that would then create this, this one flesh union. Again, that's the language you, you see in, in Genesis and as well as every other reference to marriage and, and, and sexual union, how it creates this one flesh, welded, wedded together union. But something that's very important to notice is that although designed to be enjoyed within the safety and protection of a marriage covenant, Got to know that, that the one flesh union is something that's created through sex, whether you're married to another person or not. Did, did you know that? Like, the, the act of sex itself creates the one flesh union, whether you're married to a person or not. It's why Paul warns, for instance, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Verse 16 Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Which means, listen, first of all, there there is no such thing as casual sex. That's something that doesn't exist. Inside, outside of a marriage, the act of sex itself, as God designed it, creates this one flesh union with another person. But secondly, this is why even to this day, a part of a couple's... uh, of what they will promise to one another in their wedding vows is to keep themselves, that is, keep themselves sexually only for each other. That's one of the reasons for that, because you're you're guarding this whole self-giving, this one flesh union. You're putting protections and promises and covenants around it. But just, just to follow that line of thinking through to its logical conclusion, to be unfaithful to that promise... And either the husband or the wife offer their whole selves in one flesh union to someone other than their spouse means that the one flesh union first formed between the husband and wife that God has joined together, that, that's now torn apart. That's been ripped apart. It's, it's an amputation that's taken place, right? Because you, you can't give your whole self to two people at once. You can only give your whole self to one person at a time, right? And so... In one sense, the reason Jesus is saying adultery alone is the true exception, the actual exception to the permanence marriage was designed to have is because in offering your whole self to someone other than your spouse in one flesh union, the covenant of marriage, that that union that you had with your spouse has already been torn apart. It's already been broken. So that is the, the legal process of dissolving a marriage is now only to give public validity to something that, spiritually speaking, has already taken place. That's why Jesus says adultery is the only grounds that he gives for divorce. Because, spiritually speaking, in the act of adultery, the, the divorce has already taken place. 
But, 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 and I, and I need you to see this. this. This is just essential to see. Notice, look with me. Even in the case where adultery has taken place, providing this one exception, Jesus says, makes divorce and remarriage possible, the opportunity, the provision to divorce, is still only a provision and not a command. It's only a provision, not a command. Do you, do you see that? Like there, there's no way you're going to see Jesus anywhere in the scriptures saying, if someone's unfaithful to you in marriage, you must now divorce them. You, you can't continue that marriage anymore. You're never going to see Jesus say that, which is significant, not only because, first of all, it begs the question, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you divorce someone who, who was, spiritually speaking, already divorced from you, had already been unfaithful to their promise? But also because in Jesus' day, particularly in more conservative circles, divorce was required for adultery. Back in the Old Testament laws, adultery, the the people involved in that were stoned. Here now under um, Roman rule, they could no longer follow through with capital punishment. But, But conservative scholars at the time said adultery means now at least you must divorce. No question. But Jesus says, no, no, it's simply a provision. It is acceptable before God, but it's not my command. It's not how it was from the beginning. And the reason, the reason this is only a provision and not a command, particularly for a citizen in Jesus' kingdom, is because of something I mentioned earlier about the spiritual reality that marriage points to of God's relationship to his bride, the church. For when you trace that, that relationship that, that our earthly marriages point to, when you trace that relationship between God and his people throughout the Bible, which, which God constantly defines using the language and imagery of marriage throughout, what you see again and again and again from the Genesis 3 all the way to, through, all the, way to the book of Revelation is a faithful God, a faithful bridegroom continually pursuing, continually forgiving, continuing to hold fast to his unfaithful, adulterous bride. Um, like, hold fast to us. Us both corporately as well as individually. As joined to God and as his people through covenant, we seek out and we seek after and give ourselves to other gods all over the place. Although we are to be joined and have only one God, we give ourselves in that same way we break our covenant with him all the time. And yet that, that, what you see all through the Bible is God continuing to pursue and reach out to those who have broken their covenant with him. Which means, listen, if honoring the permanence of God's design in marriage is something that pictures and demonstrates the profound beauty of the kind of relationship God's to have, God desires to have with us to a watching world around us, then so too does faithfulness so too does the offer of forgiveness and restoration to an unfaithful spouse picture and demonstrate the profound beauty of the sacrificial way God loves his bride to a watching world as well. And no, no, this is not a cross that all of us, by God's grace I pray, almost none of us will ever be called to take up and carry and listen, it's not at all, this is not at all to suggest either that obedience to such a call is not incredibly costly, re- requiring an incredible amount of trust in God's power to sustain us as well as community support in order to carry out. Nor, listen, 
as Jesus clearly says, nor that we are not absolutely free before God to part ways should reconciliation not be possible. That's not to take away from any of that for a second. But for those that are called to this incredibly costly calling, along with the provision of divorce, what some of us will be offered is also a profound opportunity. A profound opportunity, as much as it depends on us, to demonstrate the radical, costly love of God, as well as the amazing grace in Jesus that each one of us are daily recipients of as citizens of God's kingdom, who have ourselves wandered from our covenant with him. We, we are all receivers of that grace. Some of us will be called to an incredible, although costly, demonstration of that love and grace that God has for us by extending forgiveness and restoration, not pursuing divorce with an unfaithful spouse. That, that's, a very, that's a very specific application. But here's the thing. I, 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 believe, I believe there's something in Jesus' teaching here. If, you, if we look back over all of this, for, for every one of us today, there's something for everyone here. Uh, for instance, for, for the, the single person, Jesus' teaching here, I think, challenges you to, to really think about and honor the gift of sex as God designed it, to really see it for what it is and, and live counterculturally, whether we're in a relationship right now or not, live counterculturally in a world that, again, just sees sex as nothing more than an animal appetite, to recognize here that there is a whole self-giving that's offered, whether we're in a marriage relationship or not, and to really consider that in the sexual choices that we make in our lives. For the person who's in a dating relationship right now and maybe considering marriage or, or not in a dating relationship, but considering marriage one day. Again, this is not going to be everybody, but those who are considering marriage one day, Jesus' teaching here calls you to consider the permanence of the commitment that you're about to make to someone, to really think through, this is a commitment that I am making forever. This is a permanent commitment now for all time, to really think about the choice that you're making, who it is that you're that you're entering into this relationship? Are we aligned in, in, our, in our faith and in our goals and in all these things because of the permanence that God designs for marriage? Are we really thinking about those things? For again, we're living out this reality in a culture that still to this day sees marriage as dispensable for any and every reason. So Jesus teaching us is calling us to something different as kingdom citizens. Finally, for the person who is currently married, Jesus teaching challenges us in, in that very same culture that just seems marriage as dispensable and, and we can get rid of it whenever it's not serving our needs anymore. The challenge here of Jesus is to love, to love your spouse in the sacrificial way that Jesus loved his church. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. How? As Jesus, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's how we are to love our spouse and, and hold fast to them, whether that's in the face of something like adultery or any of the other many struggles that can face a marriage and, and be difficult and make, make it costly to remain faithful. I think that's also the, the call in each of these teachings. So, so don't just focus in on specifically the divorce piece. There's so much else going on here, so much else we can gather from this. But in each of those examples, our our, our our model, our model is Jesus, the one we look to 
And the one who shows us the path is Jesus, who for the joy set before him of welcoming us as citizens into his kingdom endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus who sacrificed everything for his bride in order to fulfill the law and the prophets as well as to grant us the freedom to walk into the fullness of life that God designed us to enjoy. Remember Jesus says in John 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's, that's whether you are, get married, whether you are, remain single, whether just you, you live just a couple years, live a hundred years, what, all these things. God's desire for us was that we would have fullness of life, fullness of life that comes from a restored relationship with him. That's what, that's what he's come to accomplish for us. A fullness the Apostle Paul describes so perfectly in Philippians 3. I'll close with this. A, a fullness that, yes, is costly, actually requires the sacrifice of everything in order to enjoy, but which actually offers us infinitely more in return. Whatever it is we would lose in order to be faithful to what God has called us and the fullness that he has called us into, we will be infinitely more rewarded with in that we get, you, you get Jesus. <laughs> you get a, a restored by grace, fully forgiven, always forever accepted relationship with God. As Paul says again, Philippians 3, says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He saw Jesus is the reward worth any cost that we might have to pay in this life. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and who fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, may God grant us that faith. Grant us that faith to trust him in whatever he's called us to walk in today, knowing that his desire is that we would have fullness of life, whatever the cost. His desire is truly in him, to give us that fullness of life, that he is our reward, that he is the thing we seek, whatever the cost, and to demonstrate that costly love to others in our lives, whether that's single, married, whatever it is, to demonstrate that costly love as citizens of his kingdom. Amen. Amen.